Welcome to the One School Podcast. My name is Keevan Bybee. I'm a family physician exploring how we might turn schools into 24-7, 365-day safe spaces for our children and having conversations with experts and people with experience that might inform such a such an endeavor. Today, I am speaking with Amanda Haupt. She is a person that I've known for a long time. Uh, she has a master's in public health, is a community educator, lover of dance, and liver of life. And I would uh, just love for you to take a minute, pardon me, and tell us how uh, a little bit about yourself and how you came to find yourself on the other side of an internet microphone with me today. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so hi, everybody. I'm Amanda. Um, as you've said, uh, I have a background in public health. Keevan and I have known each other for a while. We met um, in Louisville, Kentucky. And at the time we met, I was a community educator at a, an organization called the Center for Women and Families. Uh, that does violence prevention and response. So they're a domestic violence shelter, rape crisis center, but much more than that, they do a ton of education and um, prevention work in the community. And so I was doing that when we met. Um, I have a master's in public health, uh, so I'm a health behaviorist, only instead of focusing on a traditional public health topic like epidemiology, which um, let's be real, Keevan, would be super useful right now. Uh, I focused on interpersonal violence prevention and interpersonal relationships. So I do that, uh, and or that's in my background and in my wheelhouse. Uh, and I am currently, uh, the, I'm running my own business. So I, um, I run and operate, uh, kind of work for myself under uh, the name Chrysalis Training and Learning Solutions. And so I both do trainings mostly now focused around how do we create positive organizational cultures and how do we prevent things like workplace harassment, increase psychological safety. So I do that. And I also do instructional design. Well, fantastic. I remember when we first moved to Louisville, our apartment was a couple blocks away from the Center for Women and Families. And my wife and I were walking down and we're like, oh, that might be a really nice place. And she ended up volunteering there, but we actually met each other through uh, your wonderful partner, who I'm a longtime friend with as well. Um, and I also remember one time we were having a dinner, and I just want to apologize how unsufferable I may have been. I tried to bring a lot of libertarian philosophy to public health and medicine, and I would like to say I'm quite reformed from then and just wanted to throw that out there and uh, uh, acknowledge that I probably was and still am kind of super annoying. So no, um, I, I love the journey that you've been on. I should apologize to you because um, when you first moved to town, Joe was like, my friend Keevan moved to town. And I was like, how do you know this guy? And he was like, oh, I met him through engineering school. And I was like, this guy's an engineer. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, you go, I'm going to go do my own thing. I think I went to a dance class or something. And he texted me and was like, you're going to be so jealous that you didn't come to this dinner because you're going to love Keevan's wife so much. And so um, truer words were never spoken. So I apologize to you for writing you off as an engineer. No, understood. Well, um, today, uh, you know, we briefly talked about my ideas here. And, uh, you know, I want to say I appreciate you kind of dreaming big with me and you know, obviously something like this would take a lot of money. And let's just pretend the money is there. Given the background and things um, that you have done and seen, how do you think a project where children could go to just their local public schools at any time of the day to get their needs met, how would that help and um, influence the kind of work that you've done and the things that you've seen in the past? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've done a lot of, of work with kids who are living in homes with domestic violence or who are living um, with family in the wake of somebody leaving uh, an abusive relationship. Uh, and I've done a lot of work with, with survivors of child sexual assault uh, and all of the varying kind of life circumstances uh, that they have. And so I, I think that what you're talking about is something that definitely relates to that population of kids. Every kid's experience around the violence that they're experiencing looks different. Um, but certainly for kids who who don't have a safe home to go to, and that's a lot of kids, it's more kids than I think anybody realizes. I think that something like this is is a, a potent and, and, and kind of powerful idea. I will say too that I think that... Um, I think that funding is a huge piece of the puzzle, but I, I do think that this is something that, that that is happening in some ways. And what I mean by that is I think that kids that don't have safe homes to go to often realize that, like they know their situation better than anybody. And so they are often um, kind of utilizing school in that way now anyway. They're signing up for extracurriculars, you know, they're joining clubs, they're they're doing homework things after school, they're, you know, maybe going home with friends on days when that's an option and, and a thing because they are trying to kind of delay getting home as much as possible. And so kids are kind of finding ways to do that with the systems that are in place now. But I think with funding um, and energy put towards it and, and kind of dedication, it's a really powerful idea. Yeah. And the thing that has struck me is the, the, we need an integrated approach where so many resources are already kind of co-located in one building or one place so that uh, we don't have to try to shop around all over town, for example, or it could be hard to access services. So at the Center for Women and Families, I'm sure they had a lot of um, services uh, and what would you say are some places that are what needs that were still unmet or things that could have been improved uh, in, a, in a situation like I'm trying to uh, describe? What are some extra things that could be added or how would you make it more robust, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think the integration is it's great that you're thinking about that, because I think that that's um, that's an important concept. I think also having the school, which is what you're really kind of thinking is the school is sort of the heart of this particular kind of initiative. I think it's smart, right? Everybody, families know how to get there. Kids know how to get there. They know how to navigate the space. They know the people um, and, and the staff that inhabit that space. So trying to layer on something that is a place of familiarity for kids, I think, is a good idea. I mean, I, I think that something that comes to mind is I think sometimes about barriers, right? And then I think about how do you get around barriers? And so one thing I'm thinking um, is just around how do you create something like this so that kids who need it can use it, but so that kids who need it aren't stigmatized, right? Um, one of the things when we first talked about this, I mentioned it, is that there was a, a bill that didn't make its way through the legislature. But at, at various points, people have tried to pass bills like these where they're trying to extend the school day until like 5 p.m., both because the burden on working parents to provide childcare is, is really great. Um, and also for some of the reasons that you're wanting to do the one school project. And there was a lot of pushback from, from parents saying being at school till three o'clock is enough. Like, I don't want my kid to be in school all day. I like to pick them up and they have stuff that they do after school and we have snack time. And I mean, there was a whole robust, I'm sure I'm not capturing all of the pushback, but one of the things I thought as I was kind of listening to that commentary is 
you know, for kids who who need this. And I don't think it's just kids who don't have a safe home to go to. Like, I think there's a whole broad spectrum of kids who could use this. I don't think our communities are great at building spaces for kids, particularly preteens and teenagers. There's there's like nothing in between when you turn 21 and go to a bar and when you're a little kid that can go to a splash park. Like there's often a really great gap in recreation and free recreation for those kids. So, you know, and, and maybe that's a piece of the puzzle, but I think that one of the challenges is how do you create something that does fulfill a lot of different needs and that doesn't stigmatize kids who are who are using that or set them apart from their peers or highlight, um, you know, the, the ways in which they're experiencing inequity, often inequity that they had no control over, right? If your parents are abusive to each other, if one of your parents is abusive to the other one, you don't have any control over that. Like so much is out of your control when you're a kid. And, you know, and if you're experiencing other types of marginalization, that's not your fault, that's systems and structures. So wanting to create something that that helps the kids that you're trying to reach, but that isn't sort of stigmatizing or, or kind of for, further marginalizing is something that kind of comes to, to mind as a barrier. So I guess the solution that's embedded in there is trying to find, you know, trying to find things that meet the needs that that all kids sort of have in that age range that make it appealing for lots of different kids to take advantage of the services. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up that point. I had very much thoughts along the same line when I've been brainstorming. I think, at least in my mind, things that would help to do that would be the you know, being open all the time and then being a little bit lax with when classes start or when the school day starts and stops are still kind of relics of the industrial age when we needed to turn agrarian kids into uh, factory line kids. And part of that is broadening how we deliver education and how we provide education. And I think some of it would be if we make the everything's peer led, you know, classrooms are more like laboratories that are available, adults are available at whatever point the kid needs it, you know, of course, extracurricular sports, arts, etc. But yeah, I think very much. Um, how do you make it so that this is just something everybody does, not just something those kids do, right? Um, and you had also mentioned the the luck factor, right? Nobody chose to whom they were born, where they were born, when they were born. And like I said, I, I'm a recovering libertarian. And part of it was starting a mindfulness or meditation practice. And you realize that you're not even the author of your own thoughts. And so when you start to realize how little, little we really have control over our own life, then we it kind of behooves us to um, pay it forward as much as, as we can. At least for me, it become, it became like an innate obligation. So, and as you mentioned that I was thinking how we could incentivize families to be part of this school. And if it's open 24 seven, then if there was a need for parental or family education, it's already a place to bring your kids. Cause I know a lot of resistance to bringing kids to or uh, for parents to come to parent classes is who's going to watch the kids? When are we going to have dinner? Um, so, you know, as a community educator, you know, how do you think this would make your job easier if, if we were to, you know, have you in our group or somebody like you? Yeah, I mean, I think and and people who are who are kind of doing this work actively now, I think would shout this out and maybe they found strategies around it. But one of the biggest challenges to doing um, community education with adults in the community, adults who want to 
um, not even, it's not even about education, like not even adults that are wanting to come to an educational program, but adults that are wanting to actively partner and use their expertise to transform their communities. A huge barrier is childcare. Like, yeah, I want to come, you know, in the evening, but I have kids, I have dinner, I have, you know, my kids are engaged in sports or, you know, we have a whole routine and there's no way that's going to happen. And there are all sorts of, of barriers to providing child childcare. Um, so oftentimes you have to rely on another agency that's able to do that. It becomes really complicated to do that. So I, I think that one of the things that would be nice about this is if you do have this kind of integrated service center uh, that is equipped to provide that kind of childcare that has educationally enriching or, or um, socially enriching programming is that it liberates adults to be able to do some of the things that they're wanting to do and know that somebody that they trust is going to be watching their kiddos, that they're going to be having an enriching kind of activity and, and not, you know, sitting around twiddling their thumbs, being bored, doing what you do when you're a kid and you're bored. I think that that's huge. Providing childcare, I think, is a big piece. Something else that I think is huge is, and I think about this a lot in intervention. I, I thought about it a lot when I was doing work at the community level. I thought about it a ton when I was in public health school and learning about global health and even just domestically interventions is that I feel like a lot of times um, when we do an intervention, and when I say intervention, I mean that really broadly. So that might be a training, it might be a long-term educational opportunity, it might be a program like the One School program. A lot of times the way that we think about it is like, I am an expert that's coming in with expertise to intervene upon you, to, um, to teach you something that you don't know, to give you a skill that you don't have. And I think that something that's really important in creating an integrative service really is to lean into the wisdom and experience of the community that you're you're trying to intervene in. So, you know, wherever the, the first one school kind of project school is, really wanting to, to do some kind of community-based work to uncover, one, how the community defines its own needs. Like, what are the needs and services they want? Do parents want childcare? I keep throwing around this term enriching activities. Is that something they want? And how does enrichment get to define for that population of, of parents? Um, really kind of leaning into them and their expertise, their knowledge, of their neighborhood, their children, their community, what their day-to-day -day life looks like, I think is really key and should be a part of the, the planning stage, right? Having, having even, I don't know if it's an advisory board or if you have some kind of cooperative model where everybody's engaged and participating, I think that increases the success and it gives you really, you know, phenomenal insight into to you know what the right thing is to create. Because sometimes I think what happens is, is outsiders create programs without understanding any of those things. Or they introduce a program that might be great and beautifully built, but there's no buy-in from the community because they're a total outsider. And when I say also community wisdom, I, I don't just mean adults, I mean kids. Like there is no, um, I mean, kids are incredibly wise anyway. You have two kids, you know, I'm sure that they blow your mind with the insights that they have and the things that they perceive and the compassion and courage that they bring. Like kids are incredible. And so, I would say that kids should be informing this too at the school. Like, what, what do you want after school? You know, if you're going to be here till six o'clock or later, like, what do you want to do during that time? You know, and, and, and really kind of letting them kind of guide the way. I think if you do that, engagement in the program will increase and, and community buy-in and likely effectiveness because you're, you know, the stakeholders who are going to be using this are, are informing it and, and hopefully have some control over it, some decision-making power. Yeah, very much. I'm a, a big um, proponent of kind of emergent processes. Uh, I've been diving deep on 
something that's called metamodernism, but it's basically the you provide resources and you know at most a blueprint or a description, but far from a prescription or and a um, you know what's the word I'm looking for here, but basically you know give people the resources so that they can enact what they want um, more than you know come in and say this is what we're doing and drop it on them. So 100%. And so part of this is um, coming up with what would be basic blueprints and gaining enough attention that people go, oh, this is a good idea. And then we can then come up with the resources to um, give back to whoever, wherever the project might need to go. Yeah, there's a really beautiful um, tradition. I mean, it, it's I'm calling it a beautiful tradition. I think it's a whole academic discipline uh, in the field of, of public health, um, known as as community based participatory research. And then there's also participatory action research. Um, you might have heard of modalities within that kind of field, like uh, photo voice. Um, digital storytelling. Anyhow, I think that those offer some really great models of how how to both build a, a blueprint and then and then execute the the blueprint in not just in cooperation with community, but kind of co-led. And and you can see some of the just really amazing results that CBPR based programs have have had. Um, I know, I, I feel like I know the generation of thinkers. I feel like I probably could have some more emerging knowledge about who's sort of doing that right now. But I think about people like Jeannie Ng and, um, and uh, there's a Meredith Israel, like there's a whole group of people who have, have really kind of pioneered how do we do work in conjunction with communities? Because I think communities could even be involved in the, in the kind of blueprint building process. Yeah, I'm writing all, writing all these down so I can do some uh, deep dives offline. So thank you so much. Um, you had also pointed me to um, Miriam Kabe. How, how do you pronounce her name? Miriam Kabe or Kaba? Kaba. Kaba and the you know restorative justice, which is something that has only recently been put on my radar. And I think uh, is it. Could you tell me a little bit about that and how um, an organization? like one school would could benefit from a restorative justice approach? Yeah, I mean I would I would say that restorative justice is sort of the the kind of tip of the iceberg and, and that transformative justice is is um, has even kind of evolved the thought pattern there. Um, but so transformative justice is basically, you know, this notion that that we should be able to make conflict um, and I don't know, I, I don't want to say bad experiences because that's too broad, but conflict in particular should be sort of a generative thing. Like we should um, experience growth out of conflict. And so how do we, um, in situations where somebody needs to be held accountable or where a system needs to be held accountable, where change sort of needs to happen, we do it in such a way um, that we're able to transform everybody that's involved and transform the outcome. And I'm probably people who out there who are transformative justice, like thinkers and practitioners are like, well, that was a terrible explanation maybe. But I think that transformative justice is one of the most hopeful um, kind of thought movements out there. I think the, the practices are really interesting. I'm interested in my own work around violence prevention uh, in that I think that a lot of times uh, when somebody perpetrates violence, we treat them as disposable. 
Uh, and, and, you know, the, the truth is that people are disposable, right? This is especially true when it comes to intergenerational family violence, right? That somebody that loves you can hurt you and that you can know that that person hurt you and you can hold them accountable and you're still related to them at the end of the day. Now, whether or not you decide to be in a relationship with them, you know, that's that person's decision. But I think that people who've experienced uh, interpersonal violence and, and violence within families understand this notion of, you know, when somebody hurts you, even if they do something that's really egregious, that's a real major violation, it's hard to dispose of them because you are still related, because maybe you are a kid and, and you don't have a lot of control over what that relationship looks like in that moment. I think that transformative justice is a really nice thing because it looks at how do we sort of hold people accountable in a way that helps them grow and in a way that kind of preserves um, community and preserves family. And that doesn't mean you know, sweeping abuses that happen under the rug. It means talking about them and really engaging with them. It means the person who caused harm uh, engaging in a process that they're willing to engage in of looking at, okay, what has, what has brought me here? There's this old adage that hurt people hurt. And I think that a piece of transformative justice work is examining, okay, what is that legacy of hurt? Like how, how have I been hurt? And let me process this. And then how am I then carrying that legacy on by hurting others? And how can I change this and transform this? Um, so there's a ton of, of accountability, I think, that's built into the process. But it feels a lot more holistic to me uh, than than some of the other kind of we we tend to to go to really um, there's a word that I'm looking for and I am failing really punitive measures right like we we go there immediately and I'm and I don't want to wash accountability like away because I think that accountability is hugely important but I do think that um, really thinking about how do we make how do we make things generative that seem really destructive is a really valuable kind of piece because a lot can be built of, of things of hardship and of things that, that are not great on the surface. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, I was, you know, really, I mean, when, when I first heard it, it um, really opened my mind and, you know, I've been thinking about this myself and you touch upon how if there's people that are doing things, that are antisocial, you're right. We currently put them in prison and there's an enormous um, recidivism rate. And I had often thought that, you know, why don't what we currently call prisons basically look like really nice mental hospitals? You know, if people are hurt and sick, we need to take care of them as such and provide them with a place to regulate if they need medicines, the therapy and, uh, you know, skills to be able to reintegrate because, as we're seeing, putting people in prison at the enormous price tag that we're doing, it really isn't helping anybody. Um, and I, when I first heard about abolish prisons, I think the way that I'm framing it is that what we currently call prisons will be so radically changed that they won't be, they won't resemble prisons anymore. So in one sense, it does make sense to abolish prisons if we're going to just give people places where that they can actually restore or if they're just incapable of um, being safe, at least we can hold them humanely. I'm just curious if what I said resonates at all with uh, with what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that abolition is a word um, and I mean, it's not it's more than a word. It's a whole philosophical movement that's rich and, and worth exploring. But I think that often when folks hear abolition, uh, certainly this is true around 
prison abolition, it's true around abolition in a, in a sort of broader sense, we sort of hear destruction that we're going to destroy, we're going to get rid of. But I, I truly believe that abolition, the whole philosophical movement, you cannot find and will not find a more hopeful, imaginative, innovative space. Abolition does not, you know, as a broad philosophical movement, advocate for just destroying things and not and not replacing them with something. It's about, um, it is about abolishing systems, getting rid of systems that don't serve us, that don't serve us individually, that don't serve us collectively, and um, and replacing them with things that are going to serve other people, rebuilding them. One of the things, you know, I've been doing violence prevention work for a really long time. I do it in a different context now than I used to. Um, but one of the things that that kind of blows my mind all the time is how limited my imagination is. That when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working uh, with a workplace that's maybe having a really difficult issue, there's a lot of incivility, people are bullying each other, maybe there's harassment happening. You know, I'm trying to see through to solutions and I am so limited sometimes in the thinking I have. And I will say that that looking at both transformative justice, looking at um, abolition, abolition and, and reading those kind of thinkers always challenges me to be more imaginative, imaginative and to create something that that potentially might benefit more people. We just get very stuck, I think, sometimes in our traditions and our systems and the way that things have always been. And I understand that, right? Because humans are, are creatures of habit. I'm a health behaviorist. If there's one thing I learned, it's that, right? In graduate school. So I know that we get attached to those things, but the truth is that when something isn't working, we don't have to be resigned to it. We can change it. It takes effort to change things. And sometimes it feels like that effort might be way beyond you know, what we ever imagined it would be. But the cost of having systems that don't work over and over again on us individually and collectively is so great. Um, so I don't know. I, I just think that there's a lot in abolition that's misunderstood in a widespread way. And, and I think it's, it's so hopeful as a philosophical movement. Well, thank you for that. Like, if we need anything right now, it is optimism in these weird times. And yeah, this project is nothing if not quite imaginative. So I resonate with that highly. Um, and then, that, you know, with the restorative justice, you know, like you said, hurting people hurt people. And um, I think it was Dan Siegel and his partner, um, uh, Dr. Bryson, who uh, talk about how every misbehavior in children is an unmet need, right? And so if we're wanting to reverse engineer why hurting people hurt people, like what are those needs that we can meet? And at least with a project like this, hopefully we can meet more of those needs and there will be slightly fewer or less harmful people in the future, right? For the sure. next generation. I mean, too, even it's not even just relegated to children. If you think about nonviolent conflict resolution, which is a key um, conflict resolution modality. I mean, Sylvia, your, your wife would know many, many more beyond that. This is her area of expertise. But that whole kind of... Uh, strategy and process of conflict resolution is based around the idea that conflict is fundamentally about unmet needs. And that even when it comes to adults, so much of, of what we experience interpersonally on like a low, a low key, you know, nonviolent sort of scale, just everyday conflicts that we have and disagreements is about, you know, we have needs and there's no guarantee that that our needs are going to be the same need at the same moment or that we're always going to be able to meet them. So I think that that has relevance, not just for kids, but for adults, too. We spend so little time learning 
how to communicate through that stuff. I don't know. And we spend, I mean, you're a, you're a doctor, I'm a public health practitioner. So little, I feel like of the systems around both of those disciplines deal with mental health kind of holistically. I'm hoping that that is something that we're going to continue to kind of move the needle on. But that to me feels like a really critical piece of all of this, of integrating mental health, not only into the one school program or similar programs like it, but integrating mental health deeply into medicine, into public health, into school environments, into policing, however that kind of evolves over time. I feel like, you know, and we've had a more rich dialogue, I feel like, about this topic over the past couple of years um, because of the pandemic, because of um, the kind of racial reckoning that has had a, a mass resurgence in the United States, we've been kind of thinking about this. But I, I think that that having mental health be something that we all think of as a piece of our overall kind of health picture and that is well-resourced so that therapy and engaging in mental health services is accessible and destigmatized. Like that is, that would be such a transformative thing because we don't, we don't get enough of these skills. We don't treat them as leadership skills and life skills. And they 100% are. So much. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, medicine is coming around to that, you know, what Western philosophy in general has really kind of been neglectful of an interiority. Um, and, we're, we're, we're getting better. It's slower than we'd like. The funding is not there. I mean, half, at least like half of what I see as a primary care physician is obviously mental health. And then, uh, the other half is stuff that's, um, indirectly, you know, mental health in the sense that, uh, behavior change as it regards to diabetes control, blood pressure control, weight control, um, or coping with chronic illness such as cancer, those are all interior experiences that we have not been resourcing. You know, the, all of the therapists that I know are overbooked. Uh, the state insurances really pay pennies on the dollar and only a few um, therapists accept that insurance at all. The, the number of psychiatrists that are out there is about a tenth of what we need. And so I think we need to kind of demand as a society that we will value interiority as an essential quality and not so much as it's been in like large degree an instrumental quality. Like we just want people good enough to show up and pay taxes and that's not sustainable and um, you know, all we have is our internal experience, not to be too solipsistic about it, but the, the, if we agree that there's an external reality that we all occupy, we still only have access to it through our internal experience. And until we recognize that and um, have better tools and language around the filter of our internal experience that allows us to interact with the external world and air quotes, um, we're going to end up in a, in continuing places of uh, unnecessary hurt. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the two things are, you know, your physical health and your mental health are inherently connected, right? I, I deal with so many professionals that are incredibly stressed out, that don't have great um, stress, you know, management 
skills because they, you know, we don't reward that. We're all about, you know, like bootstraps and meritocracy and work yourself into the ground. If you work hard, you're going to attain things. And as it turns out, you don't have great stress kind of coping mechanisms. You know, the, the impact of that relates to so many health conditions, be it, you know, so you pick up smoking. So, you know, the one thing that calms you down at the end of the night is to, you know, is to drink and, you know, insomnia, I think about hypertension, you think about, I mean, so many, you can link it to so many sort of health outcomes. And so if we just kind of dealt with that stress kind of coping mechanism, if we help people process anxiety and gave them a safe space to do that, I think we would see I think we would see a lot of benefit and I think we would see actually a lot. I mean, I know that profit, we that's like the thing that drives so many things, but I think people would be more productive and more innovative and we would save a lot of money on medical care. I know. I, I hate to take it there that just for the sake of the GDP, as much as I hate that as a reductive measure of, uh, you know, civilizational well-being, if we really fucking care about the GDP, we'd like pay for people to go to therapy. So we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, um, unfortunately, literally as well. Um, and I've often advocated that like we have our annuals doctor visit that uh, we're all like socially aware that we should do. Like, why isn't it that we also have a um, prescribed regular check-in that is just something you do. It's not something you wait until there's a crisis, but you just have your annual therapist visit. Or, you know, it could be along any sort of the interior experiences, um, meditation, mindfulness, I mean, you name it, but just throwing it out there that as a society and as a health insurance um, system, we promote that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. Um, yeah. I think too, and I don't want to add to teacher burden, something that I was thinking about, I was listening to some of the earlier podcasts just to feel prepared before this. Um, and I uh, was thinking a little bit about uh, so somebody, and I can't remember who it was, talked about the importance of teachers having sort of trauma-informed practice, like understanding what that means. It strikes me that if you are going to have an integrative system like the the one that you're proposing, that that even if somebody's not a mental health practitioner, that they understand what being a trauma-informed educator is. And I almost hate saying that out loud because I feel like if there's anybody who's overburdened, underappreciated, and underpaid, it's teachers. Like we ask so much of them when I think about, you know, in the absence of a model like the one you're proposing, how is this issue being dealt with, right? Some of it is what I've already said. Kids are really smart about their own situations. They're staying at school doing extracurriculars because they don't want to go home sometimes. You've got teachers who are providing all sorts of stuff. And if you talk to any public school teacher, certainly any public school teacher in a district that doesn't have massive property, you know, that's not stuffed with cash because of, of the way that we fund schools in the United States, they're often providing not only their own supplies for their classroom, but they're providing things for kids. You know, they've got like a granola bar in their desk to give to a kid who's who's hungry, who's, you know, they can tell is, is maybe in need of, of a snack. And that's just like, that's one example of a myriad of things that I'm sure the teachers have that they're providing to students. Schools are often, and we, and we discovered this in the pandemic, right? One of the first crises when school wasn't in session was how are kids who rely on free and reduced lunch to get their meals, how are they going to get meals in this? And schools were really amazing and incredible at mobilizing, you know, buses and doing meal delivery for kids. Like we're doing it in all of these different, different kind of ways. Um, and, and so I want to acknowledge that burden. I want to acknowledge both the ingenuity of that and that burden. And I want to say that I think that for a model like this to work, 
there needs to be additional professional development around what it means to provide sort of trauma-informed care and, and to sort of holistically serve students and families. I don't think that's a part often of the training that folks are getting. It's something that they kind of learn experientially as they're going through it, but that seems pretty important to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in, in this pipe dream that I'm, I'm running, we're going to have three to four times as many teachers earning nearly as much as a family physician. And, you know, we would be paying paying them directly to get their continuing education. Um, because you're right, they're already overburdened. And it's it's just not fair. And they're the people doing the hardest work. And um, you know, I talk, I don't know why, but people say, well, we can't pay teachers more because then they're only going to go into it for the money. Um, and it's just one of those nails on chalkboard responses. Um, we have so me, many so. responses like that and it wears me out. It wears me out, especially, I mean, I am so passionate. I am not, I'm not a teacher in a school, right? Like I, I do training and stuff and I, and I often in those roles get paid better than a teacher does, which is very unfair. But one of the things that burns me up about that is that when you ask people, you know, all different types of people, when you ask really successful people, um, what, you know, what was it that led you on this path? So often in those stories, it's, I had a teacher who believed in me. Like I had, you know, people have these really powerful stories of the way that a teacher showed confidence or a teacher saw some kind of aptitude that they didn't see in themselves and encouraged it, you know, or a teacher made an effort to connect with them after a class. Like our lives have um, been so positively blessed often with these teacher interactions. I mean, I can think of so many teacher stories. I, I am a, a writer, a communicator, the person who made me feel most confident about that was an English teacher named Geraldine King. She was like, you are, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but like this essay that you wrote is really great. And I think that you have a lot of potential in this way. And I had, it wasn't something I realized about myself. It changed the whole trajectory of, of my life, of what I thought I could do. And I was like 11, right? So I don't know. I, I mean, I think that I think it's interesting. I, I do think that viewpoint is out there. If we pay teachers a lot, like it's going to cause all these problems. And it's like, maybe they'll just be able to do an incredible job even more incredibly and sustainably. And maybe it'll continue to impact us in the way that it already is. And that we have these incredible stories. Exactly. Um, the, uh, my new, um, uh, intellectual crush right now is this guy named, uh, Zach Stein. And he, uh, and, and he, he's said this a few times in a different ways, but basically if you consider like, what is education, it's the intergenerational transmission of information. And then when you ask, okay, so what is civilization? What is the thing that makes humanity different than, you know, even our next closest primate relative, it's the capacity for intergenerational transmission of information, like education is the civilizational project, but it's somehow been relegated to not top tier. And the more I think about it, if education and, and keeping our children safe is not the most important thing and most well-funded thing we're doing, civilization is going to be a self-terminating process. So that's just kind of what I'm throwing out there right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know me. I I would like add a feminist component to it, which is like, I feel like historically, and if you look at who's represented in that field, it's disproportionately women. And societally, culturally, we devalue 
work that women do. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I don't mean to like be so far in the binary, but I, I think that that is, there, there is a piece of it that is, that is sort of systemic. And, and um, I think that if we elevated teachers, we would benefit in a lot of ways. And I think that it would create more gender equity as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, it's, it's an integrated process and I, I don't know if I can say it succinctly, but yes, I agree with you. <laughs> Well, we've been at this for about 40 minutes. I don't want to take too much of your evening. Um, is there anything else that I might have forgot to ask about or anything that you'd like to plug or any kind of closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Um, there are two things that I wrote down that I had meant to say when we talked last, and I don't even know if this is worth your podcast, but one of them Please. is that there, you probably know all about this study. I, I certainly used it a ton in my training as a public health practitioner, but it's the ACES study, the adverse childhood experiences study. I feel like it's this, um, massive data set. It's this incredible study that's been done that, that looks at exactly that. What are negative experiences we have in children? And there's a longitudinal component where it's looking at, you know, how do, how do these experiences relate to things that we go on to experience? And I think it's a it's an incredibly rich and incredibly underutilized source of data in terms of if we can kind of use it to understand um, the, the things that we most need to address with the work that we're doing, that I think it would advance all of our work. And so that's something I will throw out there is a resource. And I don't have any, like, I can't point you to a particular thing. I just think that in your quest to understand this issue, looking at the ACEs information uh, might be really helpful. And my own work that I've done, I feel like it's shown up in a in kind of a big way. Or it's led me to have kind of new insights about it. Um, one of the insights being how foundational and formative what we experience as kids uh, is for good and for bad, right? Like it both adverse childhood experiences simultaneously give us incredible resilience and also have a, a major impact on stuff that happens long after we're on the other side of whatever happened when we were kids. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think that the overarching thing, and I know that you've got this, is just around integrating and and, and having community participation in what you're doing. I think that almost everything that I do in public health was born out of communities. So one of the things that I've trained and taught for years is I've done a ton of bystander intervention training. It's something that, um, that have, you know, kids, kids are getting bystander intervention training in workplaces. It's become a model for workplace harassment training, and it is a training modality. It's a set of skills that was a hundred percent born out of marginalized communities, particularly black communities and communities of color that were left outside of systems that were um, intentionally sort of denied resources. And so said, you know what, if nobody's looking out for us, we're going to look out for each other. Um, and so one of the things that I always think about is look at what the community is doing to heal itself. I think about mutual aid and, and we see this, right? We just had Hurricane Ida. New Orleans is in a really rough situation. And one of the things um, that's happening that is that is positive in the wake of this is there's just an enormous amount of mutual aid that's happening. Community members organizing on behalf of each other, finding resources for each other, um, that the communities just have they have an incredible amount of wisdom. And so, you know, as we seek to do things to improve people that we lean into to the wisdom, both of communities, and, and I want to just say it, particularly marginalized communities, because I feel like they are tasked often um, with solving problems that they didn't create with very few resources. And, and it's, it's pretty incredible what exists in those spaces. 
Yeah. Um, well, thank you for those words. Um, it's always good to sit with that and, uh, again, avoid anything that even could be, uh, appear to be, you know, colonization or more imposition. So, um, behind, I agree with that 100%. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this evening. Uh, really appreciate your wisdom. Always humbled by how much you, uh, are able and willing to share. And so, um, Thanks again. Uh, yeah, everybody look out, look, check out Chrysalis Learning and I'll post links on the site when I'm done. So thank you. Thank you, Keithan. <laughs>